This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Let us pray. Father, we would see Jesus today. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, that as we listen to your word, you may fill us and send us into your world to be messengers of your kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, when I was a child, I think my favorite animal was the duck-billed platypus. When this animal was first encountered by Europeans, it was described as an egg-laying, duck-billed, beaver-tailed, otter-footed mammal. It baffled European naturalists when they first encountered it, and actually when reports began to go back to Europe, some considered it an elaborate hoax. Now, if this is not too irreverent, let me say that the Feast of the Transfiguration that we are celebrating today is somewhat like a duck-billed platypus. We are celebrating Transfiguration today, which is why we are white and not green. Uh, Now, before you think I've totally lost it, let me explain a bit of what I mean. The Feast of the Transfiguration seems to be an anomaly in the Christian year although every other feast associated with the life of Jesus happens between Advent and Pentecost, that is between December and April, the traditional feast date of the Feast of the Transfiguration, at least in the Western Church, is on August the 6th, during what is sometimes called ordinary time. In other parts of the church, at least those churches that use a church calendar to organize its yearly worship, the Transfiguration happens at other times. In the original Roman rite, the gospel story of the Transfiguration was read at the beginning of Lent. Why? Well, because the Transfiguration of Jesus happens just before Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, as Luke tells us. And Lent is a symbolic journey to the cross. In some churches more recently, the Transfiguration has been moved to Epiphany. Why? Well, Epiphany means unveiling. Or, that is, the epiphany is the time when we remember events like Jesus' baptism, when the voice came from heaven and reveals Jesus as God's son, and the story of the visit of the wise men, the magi, to Jesus, because they are the first Gentiles to receive the revelation, the unveiling of the news that Jesus is the savior of the world. Others have suggested that the transfiguration ought to be celebrated in Advent, because Advent has eschatological overtones. That is, Advent is not only remembering that Jesus is coming at Christmas, but remembering that Jesus is coming again at the end of time, at the end of history. And the transfiguration seems to be a kind of of end-of-the-world event in some ways, a kind of revelation of Christ in glory. And so, weirdest of all, 
is the traditional Western date, which you are using today, August the 6th, transferred from tomorrow. Uh, this was chosen by Pope Calixtus III to commemorate the lifting of the siege of Belgrade in 1456. Now, there is a point to this liturgical confusion. The transfiguration seems to have spiritual and theological overtones that point in various directions. It's not easy to categorize this story. It's not easy to fit it into a neat, systematic box. From one perspective, it is kind of like the duck-billed platypus of the church year. It doesn't fit our categories. It's an event full of illusion and mystery. But what does it mean? Well, let's look at this text. First of all, we need to look at the event immediately before uh, the Feast of the Transfiguration or the, the story of the Transfiguration. Uh, Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples who he is. And they answer, and they get the words right, you are the Christ, but they don't understand what that means. And so he explains to them that he has to go to Jerusalem, and he is going to suffer and die and rise again. And Jesus explains this partly by using the words glory, the word glory, and the term the kingdom of God. Listen to what he says in chapter 9, verses 26 to 27 of Luke. Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So those are the words in Luke immediately before the story of the transfiguration. Two events follow the story of the transfiguration. In all three of the Gospels that record the story, Jesus comes down the mountain, and at the bottom of the mountain, there is a demon-possessed boy. We will come back to that later. And then Luke tells us that after a few things happen, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. This is very end of the of the ninth chapter of Luke. Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, beginning what is sometimes called the Lucan travel narrative. Well, let's look at the passage itself. Verse 28 of Luke 9, it's in your bulletin, sets the stage for the story. Now, about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. The first thing to note is the mention of eight days. The precise time reference draws our attention back to the previous story. Eight days after what, we ask? Eight days after his discussion with the disciples in which he asks them who they think he is and he explains to them that his identity as the Christ means he must go to Jerusalem to suffer Eight days after he explained to them that he will come in glory. Eight days after he says that some there will not taste death until they see the kingdom. And so after eight days, Jesus takes three disciples, Peter and James and John. Now, perhaps this is the inner core of the apostolic group, or perhaps I tend to think, uh, that these are the troublemakers in the apostolic group and that he doesn't want to let them out of his sight. 
In, in any event, he heads up the mountain. Uh, now, it's probably Mount Hermon in northern Israel, which is fairly close to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, but Luke doesn't tell us the name of the mountain, and in a sense, it's not important. The mountain is unnamed because the what's important is they, they go up a mountain. We think about mountains in the Bible. We think about this as a place where God reveals himself. Mountains are places where religious experiences happen, where God's voice is heard, where God appears. It's the place where God gave the law. It's the place where God gave the still small voice to Elijah. And he goes up the mountain to do something. He goes up the mountain to pray. Well, we've already heard this earlier in chapter 9. In Caesarea Philippi, before Jesus talks to his disciples about his identity, it says he was praying by himself and his disciples came and then he asked them. Luke frequently mentions Jesus praying. In fact, Luke mentions Jesus praying more than all of the other gospels put together. He mentions prayer in 9 verse 18 and we'll mention it again in the next verse in our passage. Every time Jesus needs to make a decision, every time there is a crucial event in the narrative, a change in what's a change of scene, a change of uh, what's going to happen next, Jesus prays first. So the scene is set. They go up the mountain, Peter, James, and John with Jesus, eight days after Caesarea Philippi, and they go up to pray. Verse 29 says, And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. His appearance altered. It changed. It became different. A, metaphor, a metamorphosis seems to take place. But, and we must be clear about this, it is not a change in Jesus, but a change in his appearance to the disciples. In the Old Testament, the face, the countenance, is, as one commentator puts it, a mirror of the heart. So Moses' face is, is changed. It's glowing after he talks with God. Uh, it's a reflection of one's relationship with God. But what Luke is telling us here is that what the disciples see is not Jesus becoming different, but they see him as he is. A veil has been removed from their, from their eyes. They see his inner being shining forth on his face in his clothing. Moses' face shone because he experienced God's presence. Jesus' face shone because he is God's presence. And suddenly, verse 30 says, they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking with Jesus. Two men, two witnesses. Moses and Elijah are there as representatives. Together, they represent the whole of the law and the prophets. They personify the whole story of the people of Israel. And it is the story of Israel, Luke has already told us in the first verse of the Gospel of Luke. It is the story of Israel that Jesus is going to accomplish. He is going to fulfill. They are there as witnesses of what Jesus is about to do. So verse 31 says, They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
There's that word glory again. The, the word that Jesus used when he said he was going to come back in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. The disciples don't just see Moses and Elijah. And no, I don't know how they knew it was Moses and Elijah unless Jesus told them that detail later. They see them in glory. Jesus has already said in verse 26 that he will come in glory. Now already the disciples, what the disciples see is described as glory. The luminous and illuminating presence of God. The kind of manifestation of God described by Ezekiel and others as light shining forth from precious jewels. As the appearance of gleaming metal. As a fire. This is the dazzling light of Jesus' face and clothing the light in which Moses and Elijah appear. Thus far, all the imagery has been visual, but now some kind of hearing and speaking is taking place. We have little idea of what they spoke about, except, Luke tells us, that they spoke about his departure. Now, the word departure in Greek can simply mean going as when someone dies. We might say, he's gone, or he has departed. The word can simply mean a departure from this life. But given the plethora of echoes from the book of Exodus, especially Exodus 32 to 34, and the presence of Moses, Luke must mean more than simply departure, or what we mean by departure in English. Because the Greek word here, and it's a word you know, you you know more Greek than you thought you did. The Greek word is literally exodus. They spoke of his exodus. And his exodus is not just something that will happen to him. It is something that he will accomplish. They spoke of his exodus, which he was to accomplish in Jerusalem. They talked, in other words, about Jesus' mission. Luke is somehow comparing what Jesus will do in Jerusalem to the first exodus. But instead of simply a release from bondage, uh, the bondage of slavery to the Egyptians, Jesus will accomplish a greater exodus, freeing not just Israel, but the whole world from bondage to sin and death and the evil one. Already in the gospel story, Jesus has been releasing people from bondage. Bondage to demonic powers, bondage to illnesses, bondage to uncleanness and social marginalization. Now in Jerusalem, he will accomplish the ultimate exodus, liberating the world from sin and death and evil. And so verse 32 goes on. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep. But since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. The disciples are heavy with sleep. Doesn't it remind you of what's going to happen later in the story when the same three are brought deep into Gethsemane with Jesus? They can't stay awake. Luke probably sees here more than simply a physical drowsiness, but rather 
uh, maybe a physical manifestation of their spiritual drowsiness. They are not quite able to comprehend what is going on around them. And just as they were leaving, verse 33, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. We could put that as a thing on Peter's tombstone, right? Not knowing what he said. Peter's lack of spiritual smarts is heightened by his awkward suggestion. Hey, let's make tents. Now, probably he is thinking of booths or tabernacles, shelters that the Jews made during the Feast of Tabernacles, which commemorated God's provision for Israel in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. Maybe Peter is thinking of the right story, but he situates them in the wrong part of the story. In the Jesus story, the new exodus has not happened yet. The transfiguration is part of the preparation. And in fact, in the new story, there is no need of a tent because the presence of God will intent, will intent us. Luke is right. Peter said this, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. God interrupts Peter's strange suggestion. In this verse and the next, the word cloud is mentioned three times. It is one of the first rules of interpreting a passage of scripture that if a word is repeated, and especially if it is repeated repeatedly, pay attention to that word. In the Old Testament, and especially in the Exodus, the cloud or smoke is a clear sign of the presence of God. The disciples are right to be afraid. In addition to the luminous glory, the presence of God now descends further in the cloud. And then from the cloud came a voice that said, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. So now we hear not Peter's voice, not even the voices of Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. The voice we hear now is the voice of God himself. This divine interruption identifies Jesus and makes a demand on the disciples. God's words here are a collage of echoes from the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is identified as the Messiah, the Son, as God's suffering servant, my chosen one, and as a prophet like Moses. Listen to him. Jesus is the prophet who speaks the truth, the king who will reign, and the priest who will suffer for his people. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. And then suddenly, it's over. Moses and Elijah are gone. The cloud is gone, and Jesus seems to have reduced in wattage. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. Jesus alone. You see, Moses and Elijah are not equals to Jesus in this story. 
He was the transfigured one. He alone is the one who will accomplish the exodus in Jerusalem. No tents are needed. Jesus himself is the manifestation of God's presence. Well, that's the story. But what is this all about? Well, first of all, this story is about the meeting of heaven and earth. It is a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth centered in the person and work of Jesus. The story of Jesus is not just the story of a man walking around in Galilee 2,000 years ago, although it certainly is that. It is the story of the descent of God into our world, the descent of God to his creation. Second, the story is the anticipation of the passion of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus. The descent of God to earth has as its, as its purpose a great event of rescue. God's coming to earth in Jesus climaxes in an exodus event, an event in which not just Israel, but the whole world is the object of God's liberation. Third, the transfiguration prefigures the risen and ascended and reigning Jesus. In his first letter, John tells us that we shall see him as he is. We shall see him as he is. The transfiguration gives us the first glimpse of that seeing of Jesus. It is the unveiling of the reality of Jesus. The disciples are given a momentary view of the glory of Jesus. A veil is removed and they see Jesus not just in, but as the luminous, glorious Son of the Father. And finally, and perhaps most strangely, the transfiguration offers a momentary and brief view of our own destiny. Because in the verse in which John says, we shall see him as he is, he says more. This is from the first letter of John. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. The transfiguration of Jesus points to a transfigured humanity. The Orthodox call this theosis or deification. It's a controversial notion, partly because of the language, which has sometimes been used to speak of it. But it seems clear that the New Testament speaks in some way of us, believers in Jesus, participating in God's nature. Listen to what Peter himself says in his second letter. God's divine power has given us everything needed for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Thus he has given us through these things his precious and very great promises so that through him you may escape from the corruption that is in the world because of lust and may become participants of the divine nature. Participants in the divine nature. Now there is 
a clear and definite difference between God the creator and his creation. We don't become God, but somehow God takes us up into his very life. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 19 says this, that we are to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that we may be filled with all the goodness of God. We will be filled with all the goodness of God, Paul says. In Philippians, he says, he will transform the body of our humiliation so that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. He will transform the body of our humiliation to be conformed to the body of his glory. So the transfiguration looks back to the story of the Exodus in which God delivers his people. It looks before history and gives us a glimpse of the Son's true glory in fellowship with the Father. It looks forward to the cross where Jesus will accomplish the new Exodus, releasing those who trust in him from bondage to sin and death and the evil one, and looks forward past the cross to the future of Jesus, the risen and ascended Christ in glory. And the transfiguration looks forward even to our future as those who will participate somehow in the divine nature, being transformed into the likeness of Christ. But in the meantime, there is a demon-possessed boy at the bottom of the hill. When they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. As followers of Jesus, we must follow him down the mountain into the places of pain and suffering in our broken world. Yes, we will all be changed in the twinkling of an eye, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Yes, we will be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Yes, we will one day stand in white robes in the glorious presence of God. But today and tomorrow, we follow Jesus who set his face to go to Jerusalem. We follow Jesus on his way to the cross. We participate with him in bringing light into the darkness in bringing healing to those in pain and grief, in bringing forgiveness and reconciliation to those who are grieved by their sin and healing to those who are sinned against. There is one rather ironic coincidence about the date 
of the Transfiguration, the traditional Western date of the Transfiguration, August the 6th. Because you see, August the 6th is also the date on which the first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. What a contrast. A contrast between the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and the death light of the atomic bomb. We are called into a world filled with suffering, filled with evil. We are called to follow Jesus down the mountain. This morning at 9 o'clock, we confirmed several people, six people. We asked the Holy Spirit to confirm, strengthen, and equip them who would receive the laying on of hands so that they could follow Jesus in this world and finally come to his eternal glory. The transfiguration is about heaven come down, not only in the cloud, the glory, the voice, the presence of Moses and Elijah on the mountain, but most of all, heaven come down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. Heaven came down as a person in Jesus, so that we with all God's transformed and transfigured creation may become new. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, give us a glimpse of your glory. Fill us with the presence of your Holy Spirit so that we may follow you in this world and finally come to your eternal kingdom. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.